Happy Women's Day is something I've manufactured. <laughs> to those of you who are yet to be mothers, or um, so it's, it is celebrating um, womanhood in many senses. Um, today we will be diving into the book of uh, Acts, Acts um, chapter one, and um, I would be preaching from Acts chapter one, the first eight verses today. And, um, and then I go to Sweden, where I'm delivering a set of lectures on, um, on, on the book that I wrote last year, Mary's of the Bible. Um, so they've asked me to deliver lectures in, uh, in Stockholm. Um, and I'll be there till the 23rd. And 23rd, I fly to India uh, to, um, to teach in the PhD program at a university called Shuats University. Um, I, I would request you to pray for India. I mean, this is going, they're going through serious times of turmoil. Um, a, a lot of things have been um, uh, persecution against Christian universities and churches is, is at the highest level. And during the time of elections, it kind of, kind of reaches um, um, uh, um, feverous proportions uh, because... Uh, the right-wing Hindu fundamentalist party that rules India, um, uh, their, um, um, the, the, the foot soldiers do horrible stuff, and, and the, the vice chancellor of the university where I'm going to go to is being jailed on false allegations. So it'll be, um, I'm going into pretty serious turmoil situation, hopefully, um, while I'm there, the election results will be declared. The 25th of, uh, of this month is when this very marathon election process is going to come to an end. Uh, and I'm hoping that it would be a more moderate party that would uh, come into power, but you never know with India. You know, it's, um, so do pray for that. I'll be there till the 3rd of June, and then I fly back um, um, I, I have a very interesting dilemma on my hand, and that is to uh, try to pack for both cold weather and then really hot weather. So I don't know how I'm going to do this, um, because Sweden's going to be cold, and um, Swedes, they have darkness for half the year. It's really sad. They go into serious depression, and then, and then it comes to summer. For one month, the sun shows up, and, and they are so excited about it. They go and party, and do all sorts of stuff, but that's not going to be now. So um, it's, it's, I'm looking forward to some really neat time. Let us, um, let's begin by reading from, uh, from Acts chapter 1. What an amazing book, and I, I'm really looking forward to diving into this. Um, uh, the next three weeks, it's going to be a very good series that the Theological Resource um, um, uh, committee has come together um, on uh, the issue of baptism and what does it mean for the church. Um, so hopefully there would be some baptisms. Um, where's Martin? Martin? 
you failed in your um, commission for this mini-series if there's not seven baptisms. Seven baptisms is your goal. <laughs> so let's, let's dive into Acts chapter 1. May we read this, please? Um, would you arise and, and let's read this together. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 in the goodly New International Version. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen, amen. Don't you find it interesting? It seems like the disciples weren't even listening to Jesus. You know, he was talking about something, they just changed the subject and started talking about something else. And sometimes we do that all the time, isn't it? It's, um, I think our wives will say that to us. Some others will say to the dads that, you know, were you listening to me? Because we just go into another subject um, that we want to know about. That will give us power and authority. And uh, that's what they wanted. So let's pray that we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit um, through this text. Our Lord, our God, we thank you for, for your word. We want to thank you for the history that we see right from the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, on into the years and years and years and years of stuff that human beings did. And then, O oh Lord, you descended here on earth. And he did those amazing things. We want to thank you for the face of God in Jesus, our Messiah. We want to thank you for the miracle of resurrection. And now as we dive into this series of, of what you did through your servants, the early church, through this very fallible and weak group of people who bring their own agendas into the process of the formation of the church. Lord, enable us to hear your voice, to set aside our own thoughts and minds. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we may know you and know your mission. Here in this world, your mission. Here around us, in Vernon Hills, in Libertyville, and 
and all the dimensions of society that you take us into. Oh, Holy Spirit, descend among us. In the name of the risen Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Do be seated. Do be seated. You know, I find it fascinating that the very first verse here talks about, um, it's, it says in, in my former book, O Theophilus, Theophilus was probably uh, someone that, that people knew in the early church. Some scholars say he was probably um, a high uh, Roman official, uh, and some people say that he was an early leader of the church, but we don't know. The text doesn't make it clear. He was someone that people knew, Theophilus. And so you find here um, uh, uh, Luke, who wrote the first gospel of Luke. Um, it's the third gospel in our four gospels. But in, in that gospel, he talks about the life of Jesus. And then this is the second part to that, where he, he begins with saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about, or in my former word, literally it's logos, in my former word, in my first word, um, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began. Now that's very crucial. What's the mission of the church comes from this. It begins with, with that word that begins the first book of the Bible, uh, which, which, which in, uh, in, in Spanish is in Principio, and it's, it's, it's this whole idea uh, that there was a beginning, and in that beginning, God did stuff. So when we encounter the book of Acts right at the very beginning here, it goes on to say that Jesus is doing what he began doing right at the beginning, and that's the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? Is to recreate what God created in Genesis chapter 1. When we think our mission is just to do some itsy-bitsy thing, that go and talk to someone about Jesus and, and that person becomes a Christian, that is just a small part of the mission of God. The mission of God is to recreate. Go back to Genesis 1. And what was that? It's a fascinating thing. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the whole earth was, was this howling wilderness. Tohu vavohu in Hebrew. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That is the concept of mothering. That is what mothers did. Those of you who know what it is to be pregnant, you know that there is this beautiful thing that's happening in your birthing waters where God is creating a human being in His image. That is what God was doing right at the very beginning. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, just like the mother eagle hovers over her little ones. And so that's the mission of the church. The mission of the church is this wholesome mission. It's, it's going into the universe and saying, that God who created has given me the power to recreate. 
Because the whole creation, says Romans chapter 8, is, is, is howling. It's, it's, it's in deep pain, like, like in birth pangs, and is looking forward to a new creation to take place. That is the mission of the church. So when people talk about, you know, some itsy-bitsy things like going and doing some church planting and going and doing these methods of evangelism and all that, that is only a minuscule part of the mission of God. Our mission is to go and to bring about that new beginning. That new beginning that can only happen through the Holy Spirit because He is the one that began the work in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And so it goes on to say, in my former word, in my first word of Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began. Began. Arche. Began. And then look, look at the next, next the, 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 first, the first step, of course, is the model. The model of, of, our, of our mission. The model of our mission is nothing, no one else but, but Jesus himself. He is the model. He is the one that, that, that came and, and he, he, he's the human face of God and he did amazing stuff. Look at what it says here. Look at, look, at the, look at the sequence of the words. All that Jesus began to do, that's a creation word. To do and to teach. So I want you to notice two things. One is the sequence. Do comes before teaching. Our, we, in, in, in modern Christianity, unfortunately, we have reversed the process. We are talk, 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 talk kind of people. And then maybe we'll slip in a good thing here and there. Look at what I do. But look at what Jesus did. He first went and he healed the blind person. He healed that woman who was suffering for so many years. He, he healed the, the group of blind people and the lepers. And then he spoke. So doing predates. It's, it's sequentially it's the antecedent of then speaking. When we do stuff in the name of Jesus, we earn the right to be heard. But when we talk, 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 then people say all they do is talk, 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 talk. Jesus says, began to do and to teach. He who began in Genesis 1 began in the Gospels again. And that process has to go on through the history of the church. That is what Acts is all about. It's, it's saying, look at these people. They are being Jesus to the rest of the world. To do and to teach. Unfortunately, and I, I have to do uh, a little bit of theology here and there, you know, unfortunately, um, th there is this idea that we, we have, uh, the modernity has g gotten caught up with, and I think it's, uh, it is what I call an Epicurean lie. 
Epicureans were ancient religions during the time of the book of Acts, during the time of the Gospels, who, who, who made this distinction between the spirit world and the physical world. The spirit world is spiritual, and it's airy-fairy and all that. The physical world is down here, and it's not to be dealt with. And so they talked about this high state of spiritualism. Does that make sense? If you talk to people nowadays, you know, you talk to people, all they'll talk about, oh, don't, don't talk about the gospel, don't talk about, don't talk about this Jesus. I just want to be spiritual. And take me to all my yoga classes and all that. I'll be fine. I just want to be spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. But then you define what that spirituality is all about. Here, here you find Jesus saying, no, you've got to do so that you impact the physical realm and the spiritual realm. I think the modern church is also caught into this Epicurean lie because we think that our business is only to go and convert the spirit of the person. Oh, I won so many souls to the Lord. I think the Gospels are saying we are all created in the image of God and we are mind and we are spirit and we are body. We are whole beings created in the image of God. And God wants the conversion of the whole person. Not just the spirit. It's our mind that needs to be changed. It's our body that needs to be changed. Recreated in the image of God. That is what Jesus did. So when we seek to make a distinction between evangelism, which is only a spiritual thing, and the social gospel, which is what those you know, liberal people do, that is wrong. That is a modern lie. Jesus began to do and to teach. It's the whole dimension of who a human being is that has to be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spirit, mind, body, everything. That is the whole gospel. And so you find here Jesus saying, the, the, the primary mission of, of the church is, is the beginning and the method. The primary method of the church is to do and to teach in, in theological categories that refers to two things. One is the praxis of the church, and, and the second one is the logos of the church. They have to both go together, hand in hand with each other. And so it goes on to say, he began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen after his suffering. And we talked about all that during the time of, uh, of the, 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 the Passion Week and, and the Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection where he presented himself to them and gave them many, many convincing proofs for 40 days. There's two things that come out of this. One is the morality of the church. Jesus gave commandments. He gave people the ethos of how to live a Christ-like Christian life. 
I think that is another lie in modernity that we have been caught into. And it's called antinomianism. I don't know if you heard this word. Antinomianism is, oh, I believe in Jesus. I have this airy-fairy life, and, but I can do whatever I want to. Right? And uh, uh, someone was telling me about certain worship teams. Not our worship team. Our worship team is amazing. But, but certain worship teams, like, you know, in, in, at, at, the, at the university where I am, they would say, oh, they sing those nice songs, and they're so, they're so good about singing those worship songs, and they shut their eyes, and, and they're so spiritual about it, and it feels so good. But right after that, they go and do their own thing. Why? Because of antinomianism. When you and I think that we, are, we don't have an ethos, that's a Christian ethos, then we can do whatever we want to. And I hear that all the time from students at the undergraduate level who would say, oh, you know, it's up to me. I define how I behave. Um, I define what I do because everyone should be free to do whatever they want to do. But I believe in Jesus. And I'd say, no, it goes together. Jesus gave entole in Greek. He gave commandments. He told people to read the whole Bible. Read the Ten Commandments. Read, read the, 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 the central command that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where is it defined? It's defined right through the Bible. Read it. It's your ethos. You just can't do whatever you want to do. That is a modern lie. And it is so sad when we get sucked into modernity and just do whatever we want to do. We do so much disservice to the gospel when we get caught up in what this is called as relativism. It's, it's I will define whatever I want. And believe me, I hear this all over. When I go to universities in, 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 in Sweden or, or uh, Ohio State or any of these universities, this is what young people are made to believe. You define how you behave. But Jesus gave them commands. It's like what I find when I go to India. You know, I'll take a group of students to India and we land at, what, 12 a.m. or something like that, sometimes 3 a.m. And, and we'll get into this uh, cab and, uh, you know, all the students are so excited about coming to Delhi. Of course, they've lost, they haven't slept all night on the plane because they're so excited. And, and then they land there and they're sitting in this cab and, and, and you're coming upon this red light and, and, and they're saying, whoa, he's not slowing down, he's not slowing down. And, and sure enough, he slows down a little bit, looks this way, that way and goes, you know, and comes to the next red light and that's what he does. Why? Because that's relativism. It's 3 a.m. in the morning or whatever it is, red light, I don't care. I'm going to define what red light means. That's relativism. But Jesus gives ethos. And when we live by that ethos of Jesus, we earn the right 
to be heard. Otherwise, people will say, what's the difference? She or he does the same things that I do. Why should I pay attention to what she is saying or to what he is saying? And unfortunately, that's what the world says about Christians. Jesus gave commandments. He gave them morality. He gave them the mold with convincing proofs. That's another thing we need, to, we need to be mindful of because if you want to make a difference in the world, we need to know what is this con- convincing proofs thing all about. We need to read classics. Everyone needs to read classics. Classics like, um, Who Moved the Stone? Frank Morrison. I don't know if you have read this. It's, it's, it's a 90-year-old book. So those books are called classics. But here's a, here's a lawyer who set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And the more he did research work in historical documents, in the Bible, and the sequencing of events, and so on and so forth, he says, no, 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 I can't disprove this. I believe in this. And he became a follower of Jesus when he set out to disprove the central creedal system of the Bible, the resurrection He became a follower of Jesus. I think it's so important for us to learn, to learn these convincing proofs. Because this is the centrality of the gospel. It's the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Jesus gave them convincing proofs. And they lived by those convincing proofs. And they learned of those convincing proofs. It is so important for us. And I don't believe, I don't think all of us can go to Trinity or to North Park Seminary or any of those places because obviously we have our own jobs to do and, you know, we have stuff to do. We have families and so on. But it's so important for us to go and learn. Read these classics. Learn about How do we know that we can stand by the truthfulness of the gospel? How do we know that that there is this guy called Pilate before whom Jesus is there and, and, and Jesus is talking about him being the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Pilate looks at him and Pilate says, and you find this in John chapter 18, he says, what is truth? And after he asks Jesus that question, I find it so fascinating, he just turns around and goes away. I mean, think about it. Asking him a question, what is truth? At least, you know, wait for a few minutes till he gives you the answer. But but he doesn't, he just turns around and goes away. But it's our responsibility. Yes, Pilate would have done that. It's our responsibility to know the truth. Every aspect of the truth. And I'm so excited that the theological resource team will be dealing with serious theological issues because we do need to do that. To know why we believe what we believe and how we believe. Jesus gave them Convincing proofs, the primary mold of the church. And then Jesus says something pretty interesting to them. He says to them, 
while they're eating, so eating is good. It's, it's good that, you know, Kira organized the whole breakfast thing in the morning because something happens when we eat. I think on, an, on a full stomach, we're able to listen to each other better and listen to God better. Can you organize that every Sunday? Where's Kira? Oh, she's, she's with the young people there. So um, um, there is something about eating. Jesus always is eating with his disciples. So fascinating. He says to them, Do not leave Jerusalem, verse 4, but wait. I think where it's translated as do not leave. You know, English, I've said, it just misses 80% of what the Greek and the Hebrew says. It's just English. I'm sorry. The word that's used there is a very powerful word in Greek. It says, do not go helter skelter because all that it leads to is divisions. Don't go and become a busybody and start doing stuff. Because when all you'll come up with is empty thoughts, empty goals, there's going to be, and forgive the, 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 the terminology here, but I think it's quite, quite, quite appropriate. We have a, a diarrhea of ideas and a constipation of real thoughts. Or a diary of words and a constipation of real thoughts. Because we don't. We just go helter-skelter. We want to do this. We want to do that. We want to do the other thing. Because why? The other churches are doing it. So we got to do it as well. Jesus says, don't go helter-skelter. I know, Peter, you did this. I know you did this. And you want to be doing this because it makes you feel fulfilled. But all you do is a lot of stuff that brings harm to the gospel. So Jesus says, but wait, wait. In Hebrew and Greek, both of those words are very hopeful words. Wait. It's okay. Be patient. Be patient. Things will work out. But you know, in, throughout the Bible, it's, it's not an easy job to wait, isn't it? I mean, think about Abraham and Sarah. They waited and they waited and they waited and, you know, um, nothing is happening. And Sarah looks at Abraham and Abraham looks at Sarah and says, well, I don't know if this is going to happen. We've got to come up with our own plans and help God in this matter. But they refused to wait. But there are people who did wait. Abel, Enoch. Those are examples that are given in Hebrews chapter 11. They waited. They waited. Patience is a good thing. And then I, I'll say this to redeem my life. Maybe there are a group of people that might be getting all anxious. Where's this new pastor person you promised? Where's this new... Well, Where's that committee? Are you doing your work? You know, and, and, and we could come up with a range of, of, of angst-related questions, but it's so important to hopefully wait. In this and in our personal lives, maybe you're going through issues in your life and you're getting all 
excited about it. You're getting worried about it. Maybe you're getting depressed about it. And maybe the Spirit of God is saying, just wait. Wait patiently. Because God is the one that will answer. And when he answers, it'll be just perfect and right and good. When we go helter-skelter, we mess up stuff all the time. And so Jesus says, wait, wait, wait for what? Wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Father. And yes, it's hard to wait many times because, you know, we live in Chicago and we like to go at 80 miles an hour and we get so really upset when we're on the two-line highway and there's a grandma driving at 30 miles an hour and we say, come on now. You know, I can't overtake you. I want to go at 80. You're going at 30. And we translate that into three miles an hour. And we get so really upset. And we go, and we, you know, start shaking. And our car starts shaking. But, but, but what the Bible says is, wait, it's okay. Let the grandma go at 30 miles an hour. Relax. You'll be all right. Wait, be hopeful. Why? Because the Father has promised, remember? But, but the Father promised long time ago. The Father promised in, in, uh, during the time of Jacob. And, and it's been 400 years. We've been in enslavement here. 400 years. How many years has the United States been in existence? Think about it. 400 years they were enslaved. But wait, but wait. You know, many times we get all excited and anxious about stuff because our perspective on time is different. We are these, we live in the United States, of course, because everything's got to happen in time. You know, go to Colombia, come with me to Colombia, come with me to India. It takes on a different note. People will come, they'll have this nice conversation with you, and they're doing business dealing with you, but for two hours it's talking about everything else but that business dealing. And you and I go from the United States, we say, oh, I've come to do business right now, I want to do it right now. But God's time is God's time, think about it. You know, light years, light years, it's the universe. You and I maybe live for 70 years and then it's borrowed time and, and, and we think that that's a lot of time, but God's time is God's time. But wait, because God will do it. And not at your time and my time. God will do it in God's time. And that'll be the right time. But wait. And then, of course, we go into this discussion where they're not even listening. They're saying, you know, is it going to happen right now? When is it going to happen? And here's another thing that I found about the Western church. Is it okay if I kind of, you know, talk about the church in the West from time to time? Because my, my, my training has been, you know, by people that came from Australia, from England, from Germany, from Africa. So I learned global theology. I come to the United States, and all they're talking about is this thing called eschatology. When is Jesus going to return? Pre-trib, mid-trib, bottom-trib, pre-mill, post-mill. That's all the discussions I heard. 
And that's what they wanted Jesus to say. When is it going to happen? When are you going to return? And Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That is what God determines. I want to know that because I want to have power. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But here's what I'm going to tell you, says Jesus. Verse 8. You will receive the central motor energy, dynamis, power. But wait. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But wait. When you wait, you will receive power. And then you will see the church take on an entirely different perspective. We don't wait. We come up with our own plans. If you look at the history of the church here in Chicago or anywhere else in the world, it always started with waiting. I'm thinking of the life of D.L. Moody. I'm thinking of the life of Charles Finney, who was the the starter of Oberlin College. And now if you go to Oberlin, they don't even want to talk about God. D.L. Moody spent days and days together waiting and waiting until he experienced this amazing power of the Holy Spirit come and take him over. That's what changed the history of Christianity in Chicago. I'm thinking of Pandita Ramabai, who, through whom I myself came to know the Lord. She was out there. Her, 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 she was ostracized by her family. Her husband had died. She had to bring up this, this, this girl all by herself. And then she went and she brought, she brought in hundreds of girls just like Freedom Firm. Hundreds of girls that were brought out of the brothels in Pune and in Mumbai and all those surrounding areas. She sent out words saying, don't kill your baby girls, bring them to me. I will rear them up. I will bring them up. And, and, and she, she rescued girls who were about to commit sati. They were about to dive into their funeral pyres of their dead husbands. She says, no, bring them. Bring them to me. I'll take care of them. And she waited. And she prayed with them. And she taught them. And as she was doing this, on, on this one occasion, this amazing thing happened where these girls started speaking in tongues. They started, they started doing amazing stuff. And, and then they go into the villages and they start talking about Jesus and seeing transformation take place in the lives of the villagers all around them. These are 16-year-old girls and 15-year-old girls that we are talking about. And that spreads all over India. 
You know, in, in the United States, we talk about this Azusa Street where the revival took place. And I would say to these historians, have you read Ramabai? Before there was Azusa Street and Pentecostalism, there was Pandita Ramabai. And it spread to Chile, and it spread to North Korea, and it spread all over the world. Where did it start? It started with girls who were rescued from prostitution centers because one woman called Ramabai said, we all have to wait. Let the Spirit of God descend among us and let him do stuff that's beyond our wildest imagination.